I'll read through all of this, and I'm going to kind of tell a story behind this, okay? 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time, you've had to be distressed by various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold which perishes, perishes, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, that's okay. It's not a problem. It's, it's all right. If Gina can have a mama moment, we can have a PowerPoint moment. <laughs> you love him, though you have not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when He testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. Now, one last verse. It was revealed to them that they, would not, they were not serving themselves but you concerning things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels desire to look into these things. Now I want to speak to you this morning just a little while on the human spectacle and the glory of Christ. Back probably 11 or 12 years ago, in sort of my final days in the Baptist denomination, as I was beginning to be awakened to the power of the Holy Spirit and as we were beginning to search after Him diligently and wanting just all of God we could get, I ran across in the King James, I was reading in 1 Peter, I don't remember if it was part of my daily devotions or if I was just reading or God just shined a light on it. But Paul began to talk about, um, in verse 9, he, he said this. He said, um, was it verse 9? No, I'm sorry. It was verse 8. He said, though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The King James says, joy unspeakable and full of glory. And it caught my attention how that people, human beings, you and I, how we could be filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I began to think about that and roll it around in my head. And I had to ask myself a really hard question. Do you know what he's talking about? And so as I was having this conversation with myself, 
Self said, no. And right then, it was just sort of like an asterisk in my life. And so I began to wonder, I said, now, obviously, Peter would not have written this if it were not so. There were people living in the first century who were full of joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. If it were not so, it wouldn't have been placed in the Scripture. And so Peter knew what he was talking about, and the people he was writing to knew what he was talking about. But I was not sure if I really even had a clue. And so I began to investigate, you know, in my head a little further, just to kind of roll things around. And I said, I wonder if anybody in the church I pastor know what he's talking about. Well, we're all church people. We're, we're born again. You know, we believe. A lot of us, most of us did anyway at that time. So on Sunday morning, I sort of took this as a text. And I read that verse of Scripture. And I think I read it three times. And I was encouraging every time I asked it, I was encouraging people to... Think about what was being said. And when it was over, I stopped and I just, I said, after I read it two or three times, I I stopped and I said, I have a question for you today. And I said, I actually want a show of hands. I said, does anybody in here either know what he's talking about or has experienced joy unspeakable and full of glory. And here it is. It's irrepressible and glorious joy. I said, I want to see a show of hands if you know what he's talking about. That particular morning we had about, I don't know, 150, 200 people probably. I mean the church was pretty much full and the choir loft was full. And as I was standing up in the pulpit area, looking out at the congregation, not one hand went up. And a little bit on the shock side, because I was looking for help. You know, I come to you guys a lot of times looking for help, okay? And, and I looked down and I said, something then is wrong. If there is such a thing as joy unspeakable and full of glory, and we're not experiencing that, something is wrong. Wrong. And, huh? And from that point further, I, I, I don't remember what happened. I know they didn't stone me because I'm here today. But I'm here to tell you now. And I'll declare to you, with everything that's in me, if we are not experiencing a joy in our life that we cannot understand and we cannot wrap our heads around, if there is not a river of joy running through our life, then something is wrong. Now you might be sitting there saying, well, you don't know what my situation is. You don't know what pain and, and, and suffering and trials I've went through and you don't know this and you don't know that. No, I don't. No, I don't. I I don't know where you've been. But 
But I know this, there is, there, there, there's about four great paradoxes in Scripture. And one of the paradoxes is that joy comes out of sorrow. Remember the Scripture that says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. One of the paradoxes of the Christian life is that we can have joy in the midst of anything that we're going through in any situation in life. It doesn't matter how deep it gets, we can still have an abiding joy in our life. And you still might be sitting there saying, you know, I've just disconnected from this altogether. Because I just don't feel that joy. We used to sing a little song at youth camp. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart. Down in my heart. I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart to stay. Bum, 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 bum. And it just keep going, you know. It's like them circus tunes that just gets in your head and it don't get away. You see, we're going to talk about this a little. But it, it really... We will use the excuse for our situation and our miserable lot in life. We'll use that as a situation or or as an excuse not to contact with and engage the river of life that flows within us. Because the enemy keeps us focused on what's hurtful, what's painful, what's negative, what is unpleasant, he'll keep us focused on that because he does not want us to tap into the real reality that we've got the King of Glory living in us, the Holy Ghost is resident in us, the river of life has been released through the baptism with the Spirit. He does not want us to engage that end of it. He wants us to wallow in our misery and our suffering and our sorrow and our crying and our tears. And I do a good job of that occasionally. You probably do too. But one of the objectives in my life as of late has been that, you know, all this stuff can pile up. All these issues can be present. You know, situations that I can't control, that I have no power over. All that stuff can pile up. And I'm not in denial by thinking they don't exist. I know very well they exist because I feel the attack against my body and my spirit every single day. But the real reality is, none of that stuff can eat me. And I'm here to declare to you, none of that stuff can eat you. And when you begin to look beyond the masquerade and the shenanigans that the enemy puts in our our eyesight, when you begin to look past that, there's still the presence of God living in every single one of us who've been born again, who has the Holy Ghost resident in us. There's still the ever-abiding presence. There's a stable, sturdy flow of joy. And we've got to learn how To live in that river. Now I don't expect to be able to tell you anything brand new today. But one of the mandates I feel that God has placed in my life in terms of speaking to you and to PWAC Savannah and to other people is that we need to make sense 
out of where we are today. We need to understand the issues of life and we need to be able to get past that and see God at work in our lives. Because the enemy, above all else, wants to blind us to the truth. Okay? And today I'm not insensitive to your whatever the problem is. I'm not insensitive to that. But I want to show you what Peter talked about. Let's go back to verse 6. Let's just kind of walk through this thing and we'll kind of see how it develops, okay? <laughs> There's a word in here. I'll share this with you. And I think, uh, I think I've got the New King James, so I'm going to read this. You know, it'll be really close to what's up there. But this, is, I think, is the New King James. It may be the NIV, probably the NIV. In this you greatly rejoice. And if you want to know what this is, go back and read verses 1 through 5. It's about heaven. And in this you greatly rejoice, though now, and I highlighted this in red on my notes, a little while you may have to suffer grief. I wonder, I said, now why is he talking about grief here? What is he talking about? Because there's all kinds of different words in the Greek that's used for grief. And so I go to my, uh, my lexicon and I look it up. And the Greek word here is lupo. Let me read it another way. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may get this, be thrown for a loop in your sufferings and in all kinds of trials. In your sufferings and your trials, you may be thrown for a loop for a little while. That's, that's our vernacular. That's, a, that's a, a colloquial expression, throwing someone for a loop. Have you all ever heard that? Did you know that's what the enemy does to us through, our, through what we call our sufferings and our grief and our trials? He throws us for a loop. He puts a spin on it, and if we grab a hold to the spin that he puts on it, it will throw us for a loop. How many of y'all have fallen prey for that? And when he throws you for a loop, you're all confused and you're disoriented, and you don't think straight, and you look at situations contrary to how Jesus wants you to look at them. So sometimes we get thrown for a loop. Now watch this. These situations have come so that your faith, okay, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So when this stuff comes your way as part of your human experience, when this stuff comes your way, and the enemy takes your, your, your perception of that, and he throws you for a loop, it's not situated, designed to throw you for a loop and confuse you. What these things are in your life, they are designed that your faith, might be proven at the revelation or the revealing of Christ. That your faith might be proven. Now who's proven? Is, is, is God sending these things your way just so He can figure out how strong your faith is? 
No, he doesn't need to know how strong your faith is. He knows how strong your faith is already. But guess who the individual in this world is who needs to know how strong their faith is? Me. I need to know about my faith. I need to be able to, in some way, wrap my spirit around my faith and understand it to the, to the greatest degree. Now, it's true that faith is a mysterious thing. And a lot of times when we examine our faith, when we go through trials and tribulations and problems, we usually don't view our faith like someone who's watching us views our faith. You see, you're going to struggle with your faith worse than anyone else could possibly ever imagine. Have I just told you something you didn't know? You're going to struggle with how your faith looks more than any other person on this planet in terms of your faith. You would be surprised at the number of times that as people watch you go through what you go through, they stand back with a great sense of admiration and respect and honor because they see you wearing your trial, your suffering, whatever it is you're going through, they don't see you being thrown for a loop. They see the way you respond to it through the nature of your Christianity, your Christian faith. Have you ever, you don't have to answer this. Has someone sort of ever went there with you before? And they've told you that they've been watching you and that they really admire the way you express your faith? And you might be thinking, boy, if they only knew. <laughs> boy, if they only knew. Now, our response should not be, oh, no, no, no. Our response should be, praise the Lord. Let me tell you about Jesus. But a lot of times we're so put off by somebody recognizing that our faith really is being refined and purified like gold in the fire. A lot of times instead we have this sense of false humility and instead of acknowledging that, we simply say, oh no, 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 oh no. Well, I'm going to tell you something, that's wrong. That is wrong. When we, when, we let, when we let that accomplish a sense of false humility in our life, we are robbing Jesus of the glory that He is revealing of Himself to another person through you. You see, that's what this thing says. Read it again, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is proved by fire, may be found unto praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the faith that God has got on display in your life is to be used for one thing primarily in terms of other people looking at you, and that is that Jesus would receive praise and honor and glory because they see Him in you under your greatest stress. So let's try not to embrace this sin of false humility. Because our witness will be destroyed and Jesus will be discredited for what He's done. You may not understand what He's done in your life. You may not even like it. But I'm telling you, there are people watching you. And what you've been through. And Jesus is being revealed through you. So don't you dare throw cold water on the revelation of Christ in your life. 
And it's not about pride. It's not about pride at all. That's not it. You see, this is what God is trying to do in you. This is what God is trying to do in me. There are people looking every which way in the world, looking for a reason to praise the Lord. They're looking for Jesus. And when they see Him in you, you need to embrace that. Don't be ashamed of it. That kind of mess up your theology, won't it? But I know what, I like it when Jesus messes up my, thought, my theology. <laughs> theology. You see, these are lessons that at 52 years old, I'm beginning to learn. Okay? So lesson number one this morning is that the human spectacle reveals Christ in every negative situation to those who need to see Him in His glory. That's part of the human spectacle. Second thing, verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now this is connected to the first thing. As Christ begins to work Himself out in you and begins to manifest Himself in your trials and your troubles, and as you begin to connect with Him, because you see, in your sufferings and your trials and your persecutions, whatever way you want to describe that, you are in that, if you respond properly, you're actually in fellowship with Jesus. Okay? You're not in it by yourself. You're in fellowship with Jesus. And He's somebody you can't put your finger on. You can't grab Him. You know, I could come up to Sat. He's somebody. He's wearing a red shirt and black pants. And I can put my hands on Him. I know He's right there. I can see the evidence of it. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, in my situations and my trials and my whatever, I, I can't exactly put my finger on Jesus. You know, I can't lay hands on Him. I can't embrace Him. I've never really seen Him other than a picture that God would have given me in my head concerning what Jesus may look like. Or in some of, these, some of the prophetic artwork around here that as people get Jesus in worship, they, they draw what they see, you know. But we don't see Him, but as we go through these things in what's referred to as, as probably the fellowship of suffering, Jesus has been there, He becomes real to me. And I feel the love that He has for me through all this stuff. See, that's the proper response. And as I can't see Him, I can't touch Him really, other than in a spiritual way, I love Him. I love Him. We develop a relationship. And then out of that relationship begins to flow that river of joy. You know, I love my 10-year history with what we refer to as the charismatic world. 
when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit, the intensity of my relationship with Jesus just got kicked up all kinds of notches. And in, in, in the infancy of that, Janie and I were searching out places we could go to be refreshed. We would travel all over the southeastern United States. If we heard that God was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, or we thought that's where he was, off on the road we'd go. You know? Of course, we knew he was in Brunswick. He, we knew he was at least that close, okay? We knew he was at least in Brunswick because we would go to Christian Renewal, and there we would, we would be able to just enjoy the river of, of, of God a little bit. You know, it was just in his presence. There was a freedom and a the, the worship there at Christian Renewal we enjoyed. All, albeit we had to park behind the bushes at Christian Renewal in the dark so no one would recognize our car or my truck. But we went there for the river, you see. And so we enjoyed the infancy of our, 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 our new charismatic way of life. And, and I still love it. And I, I tell you, I'm just being honest with you, I wouldn't change this for everything in the world. But about 10 or 11 years ago, we would sing about the river of God and the river of life and the rivers here and, and all this stuff. And we just get so excited in it. And, and then I would have to go back out into my world. And my world didn't really reflect my worship. And interestingly enough, over the course of 10 years, it became to look less and less like it. And eventually one day I had a decision to make. Either I was going to continue the rest of my life for my world to not look like my worship, or my worship was going to have to start infecting my world. And because of my experience with God, and yes, God is an experience. Because of my experience with God, I knew the river was there and I wanted it all the time. But the question was, how could I harmonize the stress and the trouble and the persecution and the trial and the uncertainty of life situations, how could I harmonize that with the ever-abiding joy that was supposed to be there? And I kept going back to Peter. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. How could that happen? If it was there all the time, but yet, those two worlds were getting further apart. My worship and my world, those two things. What, what, what needed to happen? Well, I needed to come to grips with a principle. And as much as I love my charismatic experience and the way I do it now, I'll just simply tell you this, that for probably way too long, the charismatic teaching and doctrine has emphasized happiness at the expense of a lot of other things. And you were just simply supposed to be happy. And if you weren't happy, you were supposed to look like you were happy. Now, does that sound like something that would come out of the Baptist world too? And the Methodist world too? And the Pentecostal world too? <laughs> yes! And so one day I began to reconnect with the principle in Scripture that says this, if we do not suffer with Him, we will not reign with Him. 
And then I began to read this stuff about Peter again. Peter begins to talk about the connection between our sufferings and the development of our character and our faith in regard to being able to mature in a relationship with Christ that would bring full access to joy and peace and the glory of God in your life. Is this making any sense? And I can only go from personal experience and tell you that simply this. Is that a lot of the things in life God had to take away from me so I could really, really, really connect with who He is. And so in the suffering and in the pain and all this stuff, it's a way of God getting us to focus and to access what's there but we can't see it until that comes. I've learned in life, the easier I had it, the easier I had it, the easier it was, really, to be honest with you, the less I needed God. And then, when trouble came, it so messed up my head, I was thrown for a loop. And I could spend months and years crying in my cornflakes because I hadn't developed a relationship with Jesus that would bring forth that joy. Now a lot of you today are suffering the loss of all things and I'm here to tell you the way you respond to that is going to make all the difference in the world is whether you feel the life of God flowing through you or not. If you grieve over that, if, you, if, if it throws you for a loop, if you refuse to give up on the things that's being taken away from you, then chances are you just, as that thing spins out of control, you'll be right there along with it. See, that's my story. It may not be yours, but I'm telling you, that's my story. And so the response to what God is doing in terms of our faith is critically important. Nine, for you are receiving the goal or the culmination. Goal means the culmination of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was, come to, that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care. Here's, a, here's something I just, God hit me with this yesterday or the day before. And he's talking here about the prophets. The people who wrote the Scripture, who were inspired by God to write the Scripture, and those who foretold the birth of Jesus, and those who foretold about the the thrust of Scripture and the Messianic prophecies concerning the birth and the coming of Jesus and what He would accomplish. These prophets, these prophets, listen to this, this is so cool. These people concerning the salvation who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, okay, they knew it was in the future. This grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to do something. And this is what they tried to find. To find out the times and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. One of the greatest mysteries down throughout, listen to me, down throughout the history of of, of mankind and in particular concerning the Scriptures 
is this, is that the prophets, as they got these downloads and the revelation, and as they spoke it out, as they tried to understand it, as they wrote it down, as they began to foretell and foretell, there was a mystery concerning one thing. And that was, how could Messiah come and still have to suffer? That connection was inconceivable. It was so far beyond anything they could possibly imagine because the way their concept had been is that Messiah would come riding on this white charger. He would take over the government. He would set everything in the, in the, uh, in the, in the synagogue and in the temple right. Everything would be right according to the law and the throne of David would be exalted forever and ever and ever and ever. But when the prophecy began to come out, that Jesus was actually going to have to suffer. He was going to have to be born. He was going to have to die. When they saw the sufferings and when they read the 22nd Psalm, all the messianic uh, words concerning His crucifixion, it put them in a state of panic and it, they went back reeling because how could, how could, why does Messiah have to suffer? Well, the reason Messiah had to suffer was this, is if He didn't suffer, there'd be no glory. That's why. And the pattern of the people of God is the same exact thing. Why should Jesus have to suffer if He were to enter into His glory and us not have to? See, that thing's been throwing people for a loop for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And this salvation... As the gospel was preached, oh, this is, this, watch this. This, I I rejoice. You know, y'all might not get happy about this, but I was real happy. Verse 12. As they wrestled with this mystery of Scripture, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long... To look into these things. And if you think the principle of suffering that you might enter into glory or the principle of suffering that your faith might be refined to be on display to others, if you think it's a mystery to you, it was a mystery to the angels of God too. They can't figure it out. Do you, let me ask you a question. Do you believe there are angels here today? Yeah. Do you believe there's going to be angels with you tomorrow? Do you believe that they're ministers of glory to minister to those who would be the heirs of glory? Yes. Let me ask you, why are they interested in this? Why are they interested in coming to hear what's going on in this gathering? Why is it they're so interested in you? Have you ever asked yourself the question, is it simply because that's the way God has ordained and commanded it to be, that you watch over these people of mine or else? (laughs) I don't know about y'all, but my guardian angel's been real busy. The scripture says that they sit around the throne room watching the face of the Father to do His bidding concerning you. So they're intent on what's going on here. Why were they so intent about what happened to Jesus? Because of the mystery. Here's what they couldn't understand. And maybe what they still don't fully understand today because it doesn't work with their brain. 
Now, I think about stuff like this, and if I get too weird for you, you just have to stop your ears or just forgive me, one of the two. Here's the deal. When man fell in the garden, everything changed. I'm telling you, nothing has ever been the same since. Nothing. When man fell in the garden, God, one of the three people, persons of the Godhead, came to the garden and pronounced judgment on man, the woman, and the serpent. And on the earth. Isn't that right? Yep. Now there was a promise made in the garden that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And because of that conflict, the one who bruised the head of the serpent would have his heel bruised. That, of course, is, is, is what's referred to as the proto-evangelum. Okay? That's the first proclamation of the gospel in the history of creation. The proto-evangelum. Now, personally, because of the way it's worded in the definition of the word, I believe that the person who pronounced judgment in the garden that day in terms of which person of the Godhead it was, I believe it was Jesus. I believe that He pronounced judgment and He was also the one to bring redemption. He, was, he pronounced judgment and then He paid by the words He spoke because that was part of His covenant with God the Father. Now here's the thing that's interesting. As history went on, you know, the enemy, the devil and all his legions and the angels of God and all his legions were wondering when this bruising was going to take place. The prophets were searching the scripture because God was inspiring his word. The prophets were searching the scripture. They were trying to figure out what time and the circumstances concerning all this was going to happen. And they couldn't harmonize all of the events that were going to happen. And so this was going on on a constant way, in a constant way. There was all this certain uncertainty about everything. They knew it was going to happen, but it hadn't happened yet. And so there there was this tension so to speak, in the spirit realm, and I say that in a good way, there was this tension in the spirit realm concerning the advent of Jesus. Now, one day in heaven, at some point in time, there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and heaven's angels, the host of glory, and all of a sudden, Jesus was gone. All of a sudden, in the middle of everything, There's now only two persons of the Godhead in heaven, the Holy Ghost and God the Father and the rest of the angels. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, He was gone. You know where He went? He went into the womb of a woman. Instantly. He grew in that womb. He started, listen to me, He started... From a two-cell organism. He was implanted into the womb of the woman. All God and all man. Spent nine months in there. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine what was going through the angels' heads about this time? Wow. I didn't think it was coming this way. They knew where he was. Wow. This is a surprise to me. And so there was this mystery now. He's in the womb of that woman for nine months. And then, after nine months, he's born. Where? In a palace? No, in a cow trough. In a cow lot. 
in a barn. And all of heaven was watching. And so he began to grow. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to crawl. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to read and to write. He had to learn to think. He had to learn to interpret the world around him. But yet and still, he was still the second person of the Godhead. And all the angels were watching this. They said, can you believe this? Can you, can, can you believe this? And so he grows up. And he experiences. The thing we, the thing we forget about Jesus is, is that he experienced every single thing Every emotion, every trial, every suffering, every persecution. We forget the fact that Jesus was one of us. And we read the story about the crucifixion and we detach it from our consciousness and from the reality of reading what happened. After a while it kind of becomes a story. But I'm telling you, he was beaten to near death. He prayed so hard in the garden that he dropped great drops of blood. He hurt. He was in agony. He was abandoned. He suffered rejection. He was tortured, he was humiliated, he was stripped naked and put on that cross. And there on that cross, they stuck him and pierced him with a, with a spear in the side. And all the angels of glory were amazed that this man, the Son of God, would come and actually do this. And then he rose from the grave by the power of God. And he visited every expanse of creation, declaring his resurrection. And he was received into glory. And he gave the church in Acts. He established it on twelve faulty, frail men who had never had success in anything who were miserable excuses for people most of the time. They were looking at this. And then one day, the Holy Spirit left heaven. (laughs) And then there was one left. His name was God the Father. The Holy Ghost went to an upper room and blew through that place and descended in Pentecost. The church was born and it has been going great guns ever since. And the angels still looking at this. The mystery to them. And it's still a mystery to them. Listen, they can't figure it out and you can't figure it out. Why should we try to figure it out? The cold hard fact is this is that everything Jesus endured and suffered led to his glorification and the blessing of God the Father. The truth is everything that you endure, everything that you experience, everything that you sacrifice, everything that you are is done for the sum total of one thing and that's to give glory to God. Why rob him of that? And when we can get beyond the feelings that we have, we begin to tap into the river And it becomes real to us. And we can walk and we can swim and we can drink and we can gain life and health and all manner of things from the presence of God that lives in us because all this other stuff He's proving to us every single day that not one stick of it matters. Not one stick. And it's not that He cares less about it. He just cares more about you. 
And he knows what the objective is. And the angels are still looking into it. So if it makes you feel better, this whole thing about the human spectacle and the desire of angels, it's all bound up together. And there's only one person who really knows the full deal, and his name's God Daddy. And he's withholding the full revelation of the mystery until one day everything's folded up, the family's gathered back together, the devil's cast into hell, glory is open, and he says, come into the gates. He's saving it for then. Listen, people, you don't have to figure this thing out. <laughs> it's been figured out for you. All you got to do is trust Him. And He knows that, and that's why He is so intent on, on building your faith and refining you like gold in the fire. It's not that He's unconcerned about how bad it feels. He just knows how good it's going to be. And in order for you to fully experience that, He's got to get you out of some stuff and through some stuff. I made a little post on, pace, post on Facebook. <laughs> oh, Jesus. You can tell that was not inspired, can't you? Post on Facebook. <laughs> a little post on Facebook yesterday. And I probably need to go back and read it, but, but it sort of came along after I was, I was sort of studying for this little message. I, I need to go back and read it. I just I need to do this. I need to get this right. So uh, bear with me. I'm probably I am probably one of the few pastors in Wayne County who is actually going to look up on Facebook while the message is going on. Let me get to it. Some of y'all actually commented. On it. Okay, here it is. How many times have we asked God to change our situation only to find out that He would rather change us? That's what I put. You know why that is? I thought about that all day yesterday. And I got a little nugget. And here's the reason. Because if we could say some kind of a prayer that would cause God to change every situation and everything that we faced into a reality that we would like, then all God would do is He would spend all of His time changing our situations into the reality that we wanted. But if He can begin to teach us, see here's the point, if He can begin to teach us through the development of our faith how to overcome those situations, then He no longer has to change the situations because He's changed us. Did that make any sense at all? That's why you were not given the magic wand at the new birth and some formula prayer for God to take everything unpleasant out of your life. But what He does, He changes you rather than the situation that His glory might come through you. Because He gets, really, I'm going to be frank with you, He gets very little glory out of changing your situation. But He gets a lot of glory when He changes you to change your situation. Or maybe he gets more glory out of changing you so that you can live with the situation you have in spite of it. <laughs>